You're listening to the Empowering People More podcast with Eddie Perez. Welcome, everybody, to the Empowering People More podcast, where here we bring on leaders that have devoted in their career, not only devoted, but demonstrated in their actions a way to empower others and lift up others. As we discuss it, we believe that more now than ever, that's very important, especially where behavioral economics is going and where people are really yearning for leadership. A top-down philosophy no longer works a similar, more better than a bottom-up. And these leaders are known for doing what is the most important thing out there when it comes to leadership, which is empowerment. And first of all, I'd like to say welcome and thank you, Bob, uh, CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, for being here. Eddie, thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I know that you and I know each other well. And, you know, we've worked hand in hand on a lot of uh, initiatives that usually sometimes are not heard out there, but have demonstrated, you know, great results. Uh, You know, let's kick it off with, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you've gotten to this point. And then we can dive into a lot of the empowerment you've been able to do. Well, Eddie, like any great leader, I love to talk about myself, so that could take the whole half an hour. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> and and before I get into that, Eddie, I do want to thank you personally for the great partnership that we've had, You, your efforts on behalf of MBA, um, which are legion, but most especially MORPAC, where you, you led us to record levels, are really important as we advance the uh, issues that are important to this industry and more importantly to the consumers we all serve. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. And and who I am is, is an interesting part of how I see leadership and how I try to run this association day to day. I'm the youngest of six kids of a, a minister, grew up in Illinois, grew up in a parsonage right next to the church. I got fairly good at having fun and not having covering my tracks a little. So that might tell you (laughs) something about me too. Of course, my parents were exhausted because I was the last of the six and it was one girl and then five boys, which was, (laughs) I'm sure quite a handful. Um, But, but that does inform, I I think both the Midwestern part of that and the, and the minister father and the big family youngest kid, I think that probably tells you a fair bit about me. And I went to uh, public schools in this little town in Illinois, and then I went on to Yale, where we have a family tradition of several generations. And of course, that's a completely life-changing and and horizon-broadening experience when you grow up in the corn and soybean fields, and then you go to New Haven and meet the best and brightest from around the world. So that certainly shaped me as well. But then I graduated from college and literally started Uh, typing forms as a temp at a mortgage company in 1985. And I've been at it ever since. What is, um, wow, that's a great, you know, obviously from the beginnings to now, what is one thing that you learned that you still use to this day while your time at Yale? Well, I think what I, a, a learning I took from there that I still use is how to, connect with people of very different backgrounds and experiences and how to see how everything we do is connected. And I, I took that mindset, of course, a great liberal arts education, history major, uh, English 
as my second uh, most courses, um, learned the importance of the precision of language and the power of language as a, as a communication tool, but more importantly, as a consensus building tool. Uh, I remember a high school, actually, English teacher said that when you write an essay, it's a, it's a persuasive document. You're trying to persuade your reader of something. And I've, I've carried that all the way through. And I think that my time at Yale saw how everything is interconnected. And then when I'm having a conversation with people who might be from different types of companies or different parts of our industry, I am able to see their concerns and how they're layered into the broader mortgage outlook and try to arrive at decisions that are helpful for people all across the spectrum. Gotcha. So you've been almost, uh, it's coming up on four years on your anniversary of being the CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association. So take us to a little bit of a time before that, you know, what do you wish you had known 10 years ago? Well, I'd wish I'd known the pandemic were coming so I wouldn't take the job. <laughs> um, in the depths of the pandemic, I, I, that would be sort of a serious answer. I mean, that was really hard. But now that, now that we're mostly on the other side, what I've realized is that the pandemic really showed how important MBA is for its members and the consumers that, that you all serve. And it was really a time of testing. And I think, I'm biased, of course, I think MBA came through with shining colors. And it was a real opportunity for our group to show how closely we work together and to go through all those long hours and uncertain days and keep relentlessly focused on what can we do today to ensure that the mortgage market is going to survive? Because remember, <laughs> it, there were days when that was unclear. And more importantly, thrive. And how can we use all of our member organizations to be the delivery mechanisms for the support and relief that Congress and the Fed were legislating or, or putting into place with the dropping of interest rates? That in itself you know, Jay Powell can put rates to zero. That doesn't help anybody unless our members get those refinances and, and purchases with um, houses made more affordable because of the low rates into consumers' hands. So our focus was completely on how do we knock down barriers to doing mortgages during a pandemic? And I'm very proud to have led this team through that period, even though had I known it was coming, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. <laughs> or maybe negotiated a little bit more, you know, maybe a, a, a headache compensation package. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, something happens. Um, but no, I mean, definitely a testament to, to your leadership, the leadership of, of all the MBA and how everybody was there, I can't attest. Uh, having been in a lot of those rooms with you in some of those conversations, because wow. uh, that's when I was more PAC chairman, so I got to see a lot of things myself right. that you guys definitely came through for the industry, and more importantly, in the end, uh, the consumer and what a lot of boys have to focus on. And, and, you know, we talked about some of the tough part, but do you remember when it started turning a little bit more to the positive side? Was there a moment or a meeting or something that clicks in your mind during that time of when it went from 
darkness to, okay, it's about to become dawn. It's a little bit more light. Yeah, well, I can, I can cite a couple of different points. There was the, the really dark period when in late March of 2020, when the global flight to safety in investments went beyond treasuries. Because usually if there's a flight to safety, bonds rally and people buy treasuries. Well, the flight to safety was such that people didn't even trust treasuries and cash was the only safe place. And that was a really dark weekend because uh, that that's when we got together. And I, I, I hope I'll always keep my calendar from then. It was a Saturday night at 11.30 p.m. And wow. my, my calendar says conference call with, with senior leadership at MBA because we were worried that that following Monday, two days later, there would be no U.S. mortgage market and people would not be able to put out rate sheets. That's how dire the situation was and how the, the world all at once said, we're taking no risk, not even buying treasuries. And that's when um, we put together what we call my midnight missive to Jay Powell and Steve Mnuchin, the treasury secretary, and said, hey, you know, if y'all don't announce you're buying MBSs before the market opens Monday, there will be no market. And that was a really dark time, but followed by, uh, and I'm sure they were hearing from, from more than just the Mortgage Bankers Association, but that Monday morning when uh, Powell announced that they were going to buy virtually an unlimited amount of mortgage-backed securities. So that was a we're going to, there will be a mortgage market in the morning. But then of course, it created such a rush uh, and, and was such a support to the market that we had to then somewhat sheepishly say, could you take your foot off the gas a little and buy, <laughs> buy fewer mortgage-backed securities because our poor members who hedged their pipelines in ways that have worked for decades, were getting these crippling margin calls. So the next weekend we were on, on a Sunday with the Securities and Exchange Commission saying you got to let your you got to let your um, the the people you regulate the broker dealers give a little um, break to the mortgage originators because they've got all these loans in the pipeline that are going to close and be very profitable but right now they have to make margin calls to the the broker dealers that are going to bankrupt them and. I remember pulling to the side of the road, coming into work one day to do an interview with uh, CNBC and the reporter, I was using, I guess, measured language. And she said, Bob, it's TB. I need a short quote. What's going to happen if we don't fix this? And I said, my members are going to go bankrupt. I mean, that's hard to say, right? But it was, it was at a point where some of them were uh, in danger of that. So we worked it out and the, the Fed uh, tapered its purchases some, and we got some flexibility for some of the people who were making these crippling margin calls. And so it was kind of a day by day, Eddie, as opposed to a single moment, but day by day after that, things normalized and we were back in the position where the, our industry really should be, which is to lead the economy out of recession as opposed to helping cause a recession. What was, just out of my own curiosity, the largest, and it was probably floated, so we know how numbers can get exaggerated, but what was the largest margin call you heard during that time frame, just to give perspective to the audience? Yeah, um, so while on an individual day, I'm not sure of the number, but nine figures, so over $100 million, 
Um, and in fact, I think it got into hundreds of millions of dollars for people who were, you know, had, had good liquidity heading into this. And it just sapped it down to, in some cases, almost the last penny before the thing turned around. But yeah, we're not talking 100,000 or a million. We're talking tens of millions into the hundreds of millions, because as you remember, it was happening every day. The market kept rallying. And while, in, while you know, objectively, you might say, well, great, the market's rallying, rates are going down. Well, it was actually, from a hedging perspective, one that created these enormous margin calls, and they were well into the tens or even for the, some of the larger guys, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, it definitely was interesting times, as I'll put it. But, uh, you know, as we say, when we discuss empowerment, uh, that's definitely something that you and the team exhibited through action, because we can all talk about it, but you got to get results. Um, and you got to make sure that the results are merited and not taking back from something else, as you said, look, need relief, but maybe just a little bit to allow more sustainability. Um, so, right, right. And, and we were careful not to, not to uh, hedge this as we need relief. So our members thrive. No, it was, we need relief so that our members can help consumers get the stimulus and relief that, the Federal Reserve intended when they lowered interest rates. And it does nobody any good to have the delivery mechanism for the relief go bankrupt because of a timing issue on mortgage-backed securities. So I think that's a good lesson. I know you you take it to heart, Eddie, at EPM, but I think it's a good lesson for our whole industry. And one we try to remind people of is to couch any public policy issue in how it affects consumers and take your company out of it. Because when the consumers thrive, we thrive. And we have to remember that that's married and not be so wrapped up in our own um, business interests that we just couch it as my firm will prosper. No, it's my firm will be able to help consumers. Yeah, uh, definitely. uh, To your point, a focus and a mentality of consumer safety, uh, which in this case was allow them the opportunity to refinance, uh, allow them the opportunity to buy and really reduce stress, which is one of the biggest, you know, as we talk about mental health out there, the biggest challenge to mental health is just advanced stages of stress constantly on people and and on the market, you could say too. So to your point, if you keep a consumer safety, uh, cultural approach, it's going to always, uh, flow to everybody. Right. And consumer safety and consumer opportunity, because as we think about the uh, the racial homeownership gap and wealth gap in this country, focusing on the opportunity that home buying, if done right, presents to Hispanics and Black Americans who own their homes at such a lower rate than white Americans is really one of the ways that not only can our industry thrive, but feel really good about the societal improvements that we bring. Yeah, definitely a mission approach. You know, if you follow the mission and, no. and you good, you'll be good. Um, which brings me a good point, you know, that you can dive into now. What's happening in the NBA that our industry needs to know on all sorts of factors, this and, and others that you see? Yeah, well, it's really been gratifying that our current chair, Christy Furco, and last year's chair, Susan Stewart, made affordable homeownership and rental and closing the uh, minority 
wealth gap and home ownership gap, they're, they're signal priorities. So with Susan, that was her sole priority. With Christy, she has taken what Susan built and moved into an action phase that is, that is evidenced by her Home for All pledge, where we are urging all of our members to examine what they do and make sure that there are components of what they do that help advance this cause, whether it's diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, initiatives, both internally within their firms and out in the communities they serve, or whether it's uh, specific programs that are designed to appeal to some of the uh, populations that have been underserved in the past. There's all kinds of really exciting initiatives. We have our convergence initiatives in Columbus and in uh, Memphis and soon to uh, expand beyond that, which really focus on working with local stakeholders to advance the ball on minority home ownership. So the list is long and I'm really proud of it. I don't feel as though we came to this lately. We've been working on it a long time, but we've really redoubled our efforts and working in partnership with our members. Yeah. And have you, I know that from the pledge, we're roughly about where over 200 somewhere in that ballpark. Yes. I think it's about 225 members so far. How many more members, I guess, are available to, to, to further that, to, to sign these pledges? Well, our goal is 450, which would put us at about half of our uh, residential lending members. We have over 2,200 members at MBA, but not all of them are, are lenders and not all of them are single family uh, residential lenders. So the goal is about 450. So we still have a couple hundred to go. And I hope that anyone hearing this will inquire of their own companies to see whether they've signed on and encourage them to do so. Yeah. And, you know, what are, um, you know, when we speak about that, what are some of the best resources that not only help you, uh, help the others that you're looking to empower that are available? Well, one thing that we've done in that regard, Eddie, is that under Steve O'Connor and Wendy Penn's leadership in our affordable housing space, we have an affordable home ownership council and an affordable rental council. And I know you you co-chaired the home ownership one, and again another area where you've been so involved. Um, but there, that is a those are really good incubators for ideas on how we can advance the ball. And I'll I'll mention special purpose credit programs, which are ways in which lenders can either through underwriting or pricing or targeting of products um, legally do things for disadvantaged communities that they might not do in all of their markets. And whether you focus on census tracts where most of the people are minority members or whether you focus directly on the black community or the Hispanic community or whatever the case may be, we worked hard to ensure that those would not be violations of the Fair Housing Act. We got a, we got a something from HUD that confirms that they are not. And I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about this from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because it's really important that all lenders, whether they have a balance sheet or not, can take advantage of those programs. So look to hear more about um, what the GSEs are doing in this space uh, in close collaboration with MBA, I think it's going to be really exciting. Yeah. And do you have, I mean, I know it's out there. What are some other trade associations you collaborate on these issues to really bring it to the broad masses? 
Sure. Well, NARAP, which you're very active in, is a group that we're coordinating more with on the Hispanic side. And uh, Tony Thompson's group, the uh, Minority Mortgage Bankers, is certainly a group that we work closely with. And through our Consumer Affairs Advisory Council, we have really good relationships with many of the civil rights and consumer advocacy groups that can be great partners in this work, whether it's the National Fair Housing Alliance or the um, National Housing Council. Um, We have all sorts of National Housing Conference. I mean, we have all sorts of partners in this that can help get the word out. State Housing Finance Agency is another important group. Gotcha. As well as, as we know, when you talked about it, DPAs, other type of loans to really identify. So that's been, you know, the great work you've done uh, the last four years as MBA uh, CEO. Let's take it a, a little bit uh, back and, and different. What is, you know, it could be at any time in your life. And it's obviously those moments that you learned from, but what was, what would you consider your biggest setback? And more importantly, what did you learn from it? Hmm, that's a long list. <laughs> um, well, I'll go back a long ways in my career, actually, for this one. I was at Prudential Home Mortgage, where, where you know, that was, a, that was a top national lender. We had a great group of people. I'm still friends with a lot of them. I was, um, I was there from 89 to 96. So um, I was, let's see, in my late 20s, early 30s, let's call it. And at a certain point, that that firm was growing quickly, and and it provided some promotional opportunities. And there was, I remember a specific time when there were a bunch of managers, and they were going to have two of us be promoted to director. And I thought that would be a nice step, and I thought I I, I knew I wanted that, and then I, I didn't get that promotion. And a uh, a wise person who who worked there and is still a friend said. Um, Bob, you know the best way to become a director is to be the best damn manager you can be, which is very, you know, very simple advice, just you know, without um, being too obvious about it, said, hey, put in the work, be the best guy, you'll be recognized as the best guy, and as opposed to being recognized as the guy who's dying to get promoted, right? And so I thought that was really helpful advice, which I tried to. I tried to take to heart. We'll see. I mean, I guess I must have. It's worked out pretty well. But I, I appreciated the um, the candor. If I if I said if I told this story to the guy who told me that, he probably would say, "Oh, I have no idea." You know, that was years ago. I have no idea <laughs> telling you that. But <laughs> but it's also a way for if you are in a position of of um, being a little farther along in your career and you're mentoring someone, it's really helpful to just say things that plainly, you know, he didn't say, Hey, everyone thinks you're a jerk because you want to get promoted. He just, he made it really clear in a, in a few number of words. And I was really grateful for the, for the feedback. And it's something that as one progresses in one's career, sometimes people are, are not willing to give you that feedback. Right. And it can be a hard conversation, but if you're just open and honest, um, I think it's so open to receiving it as well as to giving it. I think that that's a really key thing I learned. And that's one thing you learn. You know, a lot of people are, are really good at, 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 uh, at giving it, but not so much uh, receiving it. You know, it's a, uh, it's just, you know, the dichotomy of leadership that we all go through, through the journey, but it's still, 
as you've described, and you can tell from the sense of your feeling, it's, it's, it's a great reward and appreciation that you've gotten uh, to this point, learned a lot. So even though I guess it was a setback that they didn't pick you, yeah. I guess those curiosity, the person they picked, were they any good at it? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's just say I'm happier with where I ended up in my career than where they did. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, even though somebody's picked over for you and, and it could have been for who knows what, you know, reasons, you know, not just the eagerness. It may have been that they were looking for a certain type of person. And that's what sometimes people fall into. They say they got to look at a type because of whatever pressures, thoughts, optics, image. Right. Out that way. So, right. That's a good, um, but you know, I just want to say, uh, once again, you know, Bob, keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's greatly appreciated as an industry. Cause as we know, the real estate sector and all its services move trillions of dollars a year that has to your point, a lot of consumer safety and what you alluded to and allowed me to learn through you was opportunity, which is something we always talk about is the opportunities that are out there for the consumer. Um, because you said it as well, that as long as opportunity keeps occurring, the industry, and more importantly, the country will do very well. And that's all that we really seek to do. Well, and how lucky are we, Eddie, to be able to uh, work in this great industry where we are really helping families and helping communities and helping our country and make an honest living at it. I mean, we're, we're so blessed and I really appreciate you and your company and everything that you do and all our, all our other members at MBA for making it possible and to work in, in, in an industry where um, it, it enables us to give back and to really see how much we benefit the country. So I really appreciate it. You're welcome. You know, I've always, you've got to always leave it from a pay it forward attitude because others, uh, when you pay it forward, you're really paying respect to those that paved the road for you. And then wanting to make sure their legacy is kept good and actually your job and responsibility is to expand it. Similar to our conversation that I've always said about more pack in any position, leave it better than you found it for the next person. And that follows the same empowerment dynamic. Because when you talk about empowerment, it's about creating opportunities, advising people, and then in a good way, challenging them, not rescuing them. Cause that's, we've all made that mistake. Like, Oh, I need to save them from themselves. Uh, you really perpetuate victimhood. Unfortunately, when you do that, you just got to sometimes challenge saying, Hey, we need you kind of like what you're saying. Your setback was, they basically said, you know, we need you to become the best leader in this role um, to really thrive. And that was a very heated, good challenge that you received that really put you to where you are today. Right. So thank you, Bob. You know, it's always a pleasure uh, not only getting to know you better, but I think this is going to be very valuable for people of all walks of life to really understand how empowerment works and what you talked about here, which really is the uh, mentality that comes when you want to focus on empowering people more. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. It's always a pleasure and definitely look forward to connecting with you soon. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much, Eddie. You're welcome. Take Have care. a great day. Bye-bye.